Welcome to the Haunting, Unearthly, and Paranormal Stories podcast. Each week will be a different event, whether paranormal or some other strange and unexplained happening. Maybe even a haunting located near you will be examined and relayed to you. These events and stories are based on events have been given to us by the people who experience these events in their own lives. These stories will take you to the depths of fear and back again. You will learn of places haunted by spectrals and other shadows. You will learn about ghost investigations, the demonic happenings and possible possessions, dream homes taken over by paranormal or supernatural events. Within all these stories, you will question yourself and locations you have been to, those times you caught movement out of the corner of your eye, or thought you did. <laughs> you may just learn that it likely was some spirit from another plane of existence trying to get your attention. You may start questioning different locations you currently visit and begin to wonder if those slight noises that you are hearing are truly the building settling or someone from a past life walking down the hallway toward you. These weekly journeys we take together will lead us down deserted roads, into the deep and dark forests and through the doors of buildings we should not enter. Pull up a chair and join me as we take a step into the unknown. Here on the Haunting, Unearthly, and Paranormal Stories podcast. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at hupspodcast at yahoo.com or contact us through our website, http colon forward slash forward slash hupspodcast.com Just remember, believe those that you choose or believe in none. It is your choice. <laughs> the American History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 20, The Southwest Pacific Theater, Part 2. This is Tokyo Road. Are you listening? All you fine boys in your comfortable foxhole, listen close. you are enjoying this season so far i know i'm having a blast reading up on the history for this series so hopefully you are having a good time as well i just want to thank you for supporting the show it is truly helpful and totally appreciated now for those who are wondering how they can support the show there are several ways 
First, by shopping with our advertisers and using the coupon codes provided in the ads. Secondly, if you're interested, you can join our Patreon group. For just $10 a month, you will have access to two bonus shows, and of course, those episodes are provided commercial-free. You can also get access to the free episodes, and I usually release those on Patreon about a week before the public hears them. So head over to patreon.com forward slash American History and sign up today. At the $10 a month level, you have probably close to 20 hours, if not more, of extra content that is unavailable anywhere else. Now, if you aren't into the Patreon thing, you can always support the show in other ways. First, please drop by Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review. Just a couple of sentences will do, and that helps not only would-be listeners find the show, but it tells advertisers that you are enjoying it. You can also go to the website, www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com, and when you shop at Amazon, just enter through the linked books we have on the resources page. That will cause them to send a few extra pennies our way, and it doesn't cost you a dime. Any help, of course, is very much appreciated, so I thank you for that. All right, let's head back to 1942. This week, we have another Japanese war song. This one is entitled, Father, You Were Strong. See you in a few moments. あなたは強かった。カブトも焦がす。熱を敵の束ねと共に寝て。泥水すすり草を噛み。荒れた。さんがを。いくせんに。よくこそ。打ってくださった。So it's January 1942. As we saw last time, things are looking bleak for both the British and the Americans. The Philippines have not fallen at this point, but the writing is on the wall. It's now inevitable, especially as Washington has made it clear that the cavalry isn't coming. For the British in Singapore and Malaya, things aren't looking all that much better, and I think you could make the argument they're actually looking far worse. 
Now, one of the shocking aspects, at least to me, of all of this was the fact that there was a cognitive dissonance on the part of the British in the area. At least one reporter spoke to a British major who said he couldn't, quote, work up any venom, end quote, against the Japanese, since, when compared to the Germans, they were just a bunch of, quote, unimportant blighters, end quote. Now, I'm not sure what a blighter is, so if there's anyone in England who's listening, perhaps you could help me out with that one. Send me an email um, and let me know what is a blighter. Never heard that one. Um, but that's beside the point. How could the British not work up the venom to fight back when they were getting the pants beat off them? I mean, they were being beaten like a redheaded stepchild in this area, and they couldn't work up any venom? Okay. So here's what the wife of General Brooke Popham, um, who we met last time, said. Um, she said that for many of the British in Singapore, it was just, quote, parties, bridge, and dancing, end quote, to the very end. Quote, they simply refused to believe the war could come to Singapore. I asked a certain lady to help me with the civil defense measure two hours a day, end quote. The lady responded it might interfere with her tennis, so she had to decline. You can't make this stuff up. By January 17th, the Japanese were 110 miles north of the city. By now, reality started to set in. The feeling was one of immense letdown. The Air Force had failed. The Navy had failed. The leadership had failed. The inhabitants of the city began the scramble to escape. Prices for a ticket on a ship out of Singapore spiked, which makes sense as suddenly demand for those tickets was far greater than the supply. Staff officers made arrangements to be transferred to Java and assigned to Field Marshal Wavell's ABDA headquarters. The island fortress of Singapore began, finally, to prepare for the upcoming siege. Now, in the meantime, in London, Churchill was furious. He had been led to believe it was a fortress and impregnable. Now he started to question the competence of his military commanders. To me, and this is just me, but that was the smartest thing he ever did. But anyway, in meetings with his cabinet, Churchill was out of character, snapping at everyone. He is said to have often burst out with remarks, such as, quote, have you not got a single general in that army who can win battles? Have none of them any ideas? Must we continually lose battles in this way? End quote. I would suggest this is the sort of thing one should expect. You see, there's a difference between the warriors and the politicians in the military. Especially in a time of peace, the warriors are shoved aside for the political generals and admirals. But it's those generals and admirals who are usually the first casualties in war. They're often killed off, only to be replaced, one hopes, before the war is over, by the more competent warriors in the ranks. Now what really shook London was a telegram which Wavell sent. He made it clear that while Singapore was safe from an attack on the south, the north way, the way the Japanese were advancing, well, that was open. Here's Churchill again, quote, It never occurred to me for a moment that the gorge of the fortress of Singapore, with its splendid moat half a mile to a mile wide, was not entirely fortified against an attack from the north. What is the use of having an island of a fortress if not to be made into a citadel? I warn you, this will be one of the greatest scandals that could possibly be exposed, end quote. He went on to order the island to be turned into a citadel at once and noted, quote, no surrender can be contemplated, end quote. Now this sounds all well and good, but the reality on the ground was far different. Defeatism was endemic. Australian diggers who were heard saying, chum to hell with Malaya and Singapore, Navy let us down, Air Force let us down, 
If the bungs of the natives won't fight for their bloody country, why pick on me? End quote. This attitude was widespread. And can one truly blame them? Far from home, amidst rank and aptitude from the top down, and clearly doomed, why shouldn't these soldiers question? Now the Japanese, who were outnumbered by the British by more than two to one, were able to pound the city with their artillery. By February 15th, it was all but over. Lieutenant General Arthur Percival, under a flag of truce, met the Japanese commander, General Yamashita. There was a crowd of Japanese reporters and camera crews there to document the occasion. It was the largest surrender of British forces in history. The Japanese general demanded unconditional surrender and would not sign a ceasefire agreement until such a document was signed. The Japanese, for their part, agreed to treat civilians properly and to observe the rights of prisoners of war. They did neither. Thus, the Gibraltar of the East had fallen. The British army, charged with its defense, had surrendered to an enemy half its size. The battle had lasted less than a week. Even in 1942, this was seen as one of the most ignominious moments in British military history. In the aftermath of this, it became apparent that Java, where Wavell had his headquarters, would be next. On the 21st of February, he told the Prime Minister that the defense of Abda are broken down and there was no longer any usefulness for his headquarters. This led to the United States and British combined chiefs to dissolve Abda Command. American, British, and Australian ground forces were evacuated to Australia or Burma, where they would live to fight another day. Wavell himself was ordered to fly to India, where he would resume his old command as commander-in-chief of British forces in India. Now, there's one aspect to the Abda Command that we've ignored, and so did the British and the Americans, and that's the Dutch. They were not inclined to give up Java. Their own country had long ago fallen under the Nazi yoke, and their government in exile was determined to hold on to whatever territory they could. With American Admiral Thomas Hart being recalled to Washington under his own recommendation, what remained of the Abda fleet was left under the command of Vice Admiral Helfrich. This fleet did include some cruisers and destroyers, even if most of them were, quote, of ancient vintage, end quote, so to speak, and they were based at Surabaya, on the northern coast of eastern Java. The goal was for them to inflict as much punishment as they could on the approaching invasion convoys. The reality was this fleet had no chance against the superiority of the Japanese Imperial Navy. The Japanese move south into the Dutch East Indies did not let up for a second. Nothing was going to get in their way, and the invasion, siege of Singapore, had no effect on their ability to continue steamrolling through these European colonial areas. This brings us to the Battle of the Java Sea. Taking place over successive days in late February 1942, what remained of the Abda Command was smashed. The Abda Strike Force commander, a Dutch Rear Admiral, Carol Dorman, was killed in action. The force lost 10 ships, and approximately 2,200 sailors were killed. Today's show is sponsored by Smile Brilliant. If you're like me, you're a bit overwhelmed by all the teeth whitening products on the market. Smile Brilliant has given me some very interesting facts to pass on to you. Fact number one, teeth whitening does not whiten your teeth. It removes the stains and restores the tooth to its natural color. Natural colors vary from person to person, but for most of us, it's an off-white or slightly yellowish undertone. Fact number two, teeth whitening doesn't damage teeth, but it does temporarily dehydrate them. Now, when they're dehydrated, the pores in the enamel are open and exposed. Open pores invite acids and sugars, which, as we know, lead to tooth decay. So, avoid or minimize acidic and sugary substances for at least 24 hours after whitening. 
Also avoid staining substances, as the teeth at this time are more susceptible to being restained. Fact number three, tooth sensitivity is the result of tooth dehydration. And when the pores of the enamel are open, the teeth become dehydrated, exposing the nerve to the elements. As the tooth rehydrates, the sensitivity will dissipate. To accelerate the rehydration and curb sensitivity, use a post-whitening application, known as remineralization, or a desensitizing gel. Fact number four, caps and veneers cannot be whitened because they don't have pores for the stains to latch onto. So prior to having dental work, you should whiten your teeth, restoring them to their natural color as the dentist will be color matching to your current shade. Fact number five, the key to teeth whitening is the delivery device. So long as a whitening product is a peroxide-based whitener, it will remove the stains. What differentiates one product from the next is the device that holds the whitening agent to the tooth without an eruption. Whitening strips neglect the crevices and the molars, and they slide on your teeth. Saliva floods the generic trays because they're bulky and they don't create a seal. Oh, and if you uh, likely did not know this, but uh, the LED lights are novelty items that add no benefit. You need a high-output UV light only found at the dentist, so don't fall for the gimmick. If you insist on a light that does not work, get one at Amazon for less than $5. Now, the number one whitening device recommended by dentists is the custom-fitted tray. You can have your dentist make your trays for $300 to $600, or you can head over to www.smilebrilliant.com and use their lab-direct mail-in process for a fraction of the price that you would pay at the dentist. And if you grind your teeth at night, you can also purchase Smile Brilliant's custom-fitted night guards, once again, for a fraction of the price that dentists charge. Head over to smilebrilliant.com and use coupon code AMERICAN for an incredible discount, available only to listeners of the show. Today's show is sponsored by World War II On Topic podcast. World War II On Topic is the newest podcast from the National World War II Museum. The museum's historians and experts are constantly producing best-in-their-field content on a variety of World War II topics. From webinars and lectures to roundtable discussions and meet-the-author events, the National World War II Museum continues to provide a global audience with engaging ways to connect with its vital history. But it's a lot, and keeping up with the latest World War II research isn't everyone's full-time job. That's why they've developed the new World War II On Topic podcast. Highlighting some of the museum's best content, World War II On Topic airs weekly and allows you to experience a curated selection of World War II topics in an easily digestible format. Get acquainted with the National World War II Museum, catch up on great content that you might have missed, or rediscover your favorite lectures and events with World War II On Topic streaming now from the National World War II Museum. Listen to World War II On Topic on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting platform. Let's get back to the program. According to naval historian Ian Toll, quote, the heavy defeats suffered by the Allies that winter and spring of 1942 reverberated harshly in their halls of power. The Japanese offensive had made a mockery of their predictions, deranged their plans, sapped their morale, and undercut their leaders' reputations and tore at the seams of their global coalition, end quote. By March 8th, the day the Allied forces on Java surrendered, Japanese troops entered Rangoon, the capital of Burma. A Japanese invasion force landed on New Guinea and began clearing land for new air bases. Now the islands to the east of the Dutch East Indies, the Admiralties, the Bismarcks, and the Solomons, lay in their sights. This was a threat to the line of sea communications between North America and Australia. If that wasn't enough, April dawned, and the Japanese were still hitting their enemies. 
While many servicemen were celebrating Easter, the feared carrier strike force of Japanese Admiral Nagumo launched air attacks on the city of Colombo along the western coast of Ceylon. They only sank one destroyer and merchantman, but they shot down 24 British planes that were launched to intercept the enemy. Later that day, two of Nagumo's planes sank two British cruisers, the Dorsetshire and the Cornwall. In the end, they inflicted even more damage, taking out five ships of the Royal Navy and 23 merchantmen, losses the British could ill afford. Burma was more isolated than ever before. And that was not all of the bad news. In North Africa, Rommel had seized Benghazi and uh, drove the British back towards Torbrook. Even worse was news from Russia. Hitler was known to be preparing a spring offensive in the Caucasus, and the Western Allies wondered if the Red Army could withstand it. Would Russia collapse? Would Japan attack in Siberia, thus forcing Stalin into the much-feared two-front war? Needless to say, all of the losses and bad news was starting to take its toll on at least one wartime leader. In private letters to Roosevelt, Churchill admitted as such, quote, The weight of the war is very heavy now, and I must expect it to get steadily worse for some time to come, end quote. FDR, who was generally optimistic, was a valuable friend for Churchill in the dark days of 1942. He confirmed the fact that the fall of Singapore would give the backseat drivers a field day, but he recommended that Churchill, quote, keep up your optimism and your grand driving force, end quote. He further said Churchill should take some time away from his duties to relax, noting that once a month, quote, I go to Hyde Park for four days, crawl into a hole, and pull the hole in after me. I'm called on the telephone only if something of really great importance occurs. I wish you would try it, and I wish you would lay a few bricks or paint another picture, end quote. FDR also noted they had to look to the future. Singapore and the Dutch East Indies were gone. Abdicom had been smashed. Australia needed to be defended at all costs. The president noted that the British could do little to stop the Japanese in the Pacific, while the Americans could do nothing to assist in the Indian Ocean. So why not divide the command up, giving the British control of the Indian Ocean and Southeast Asia, and the Americans would take the Pacific? Churchill and his cabinet, after a brief debate, and with no alternative proposal of their own, agreed. Events on the ground in the Pacific Theater meant a revision to the original plan was in order. Admiral King pushed for the reinforcement of the forces in the area, even though that meant a delay, or the actual drawing away of forces from the European theater. Now remember, the Americans and British agreed to do a Europe-first strategy, but they could not simply ignore the Japanese in the Pacific. Doing so now meant the very real possibility of losing Australia. President Roosevelt agreed with King. Thus, the plan of building up U.S. troops in Britain codenamed Operation Bolero, would have to be altered. Instead of the Americans contributing to an air offensive against Germany in 1942, it would not be possible to do that until 1943. Even Churchill agreed that events meant there would be limits to the idea of a Europe-first policy. They could not simply allow the Japanese to continue to rampage across the Pacific at will. Now, for a bit, we get into some of the politics of the war. In Washington, D.C., it was assumed that since MacArthur was in the region and no other military officer had his stature or popularity, that he, Mac, would be named supreme commander of the entire theater. But Admiral King was totally against the idea of giving MacArthur command of the Pacific Fleet. It appears King and General Marshall met in private to work out the details, and while no record of the meeting exists, it is believed that harsh words were exchanged. 
However, at the end of the day, they figured it out. Divide the theater between the Army and the Navy. MacArthur was named Commander-in-Chief of the Southwest Pacific Area. This included Australia, the Philippines, the Dutch East Indies, the Bismarcks, and the Solomons. Admiral Nimitz was Continuous Commander-in-Chief Pacific Fleet, as well as Sink of the Pacific Ocean Area, which included all of the North and Central Pacific, as well as the South Pacific Island groups east of 160 degrees. This worked for the most part, except when an operation straddled the two spheres, an example of which was Guadalcanal. Okay, so that is all for today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. As always, I appreciate you listening. Until next time, I'm Sean, and you've been listening to Season 4, Episode 20 of the American History Podcast. Have a great day. Shut it off, Rob. 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 Shut it off, Rob.